Father, we're grateful for this day. We thank you for the new week and for the break in the weather that we've enjoyed. And we thank you for the work of this day and for your uh, blessing upon us that our labor would be fruitful. And we thank you now at the conclusion of the day for this opportunity to continue our study and to grow more in a knowledge of our Savior, especially through this um, wonderful gospel that John produced for us. And we thank you for Dr. Sinclair Ferguson's faithful labors, and we pray that he would um, continue for many years. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, good evening. We're on chapter 5. Via Veritas Vita, um, or if you like the uh, other pronunciation, Via Veritas Vita. Um, the uh, longest chapter, as I noticed, so we've got a good bit to get through. Um, but let me start by reading our uh, verses from John 14, verses 1 through 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also, you may be also. And you know uh, the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long? And you still do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe in me, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Well, there's the text. It's uh, one of the richest part of uh, this upper room discourse in many ways. Um, and uh, Dr. Ferguson has a lot to um, draw out of it, and we want to profit from as much as we can and have conversation about it. Um, Dr. Ferguson begins by supposing that John 3.16 is the most frequently uh, heard verse in the gospel, or else the words from the prologue, perhaps to the first few verses. Uh, but another uh, likely answer is John 14, 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Uh, it's read at almost every Christian funeral service, Dr. Ferguson notices. And uh, this, um, he says, uh, helps to explain two things. Um, one, we, hear the, we rarely hear and reflect on the words in the original context. Uh, even uh, churchgoers um, the, uh, that don't really know other than what they hear as a word of comfort at a funeral service. Um, and we tend to hear them as if they were spoken to us. And this is going to be an issue that Dr. Ferguson wants to uh, address here because you could go seriously astray with that misapprehension. Um, and if, uh, of course, this is the way uh, that many, he says, um, read the Bible. Um, uh, of course, everything that Jesus said um, 
many of the words don't apply to us directly because they were spoken only to the apostles. Um, we were not there. And this is a point uh, to make generally. Um, in the strictest sense, none of the words of the Bible are directly addressed to us. Uh, the direct address for Paul's letter to the Thessalonians were the Thessalonian people. Uh, the direct address for uh, Peter's um, uh, first letter was to uh, the Christian exiles scattered over the empire in their particular concrete circumstances. When we read the Bible, we need to realize that there's um, a regular pattern of reasoning that we have to um, go through in order to understand the text aright and then to make it rightly applicable to ourselves. And the pattern is something like this. What does this text mean as addressed to its original hearers? And then, am I in a circumstance analogous to those original hearers? If so, I can take it as addressed to me. But if I'm not in such a situation, then I have to learn, as it were, one step removed. There still might be some implication. So when I when we read of Jesus talking directly to John about something in John's circumstances, there may be still something we can glean there. But it's only when I say to myself, well, yes, I'm similarly situated to the Thessalonians in that I've come to Christ, I'm seeking to grow in him, I need to learn about the means of grace and how the word works in my life, and therefore I can take this as applicable to me. Uh, but, um, the, um, uh, for example, when Jesus says, what you do, do quickly, uh, it cannot be taken as direct address to me. Uh, and, in fact, there's probably not much, even by way of implication. So that's a, a, a first and valuable point to reflect on um, as we come into this text. And, and Dr. Ferguson is going to show us other instances uh, where this is um, very important. Uh, he calls it a fundamental principle of um, uh, Bible study, uh, that uh, we have to go through this pattern of reasoning throughout. So uh, he brings us to John 14. How could Jesus say to his disciples, don't let your hearts be troubled? Uh, he says, this is breaking a rule of counseling, uh, for example. Um, they were troubled and they had good reasons. Uh, and if troubled people uh, could relieve themselves of their troubles, they, they would. But they're, uh, <laughs> to, to say don't be troubled isn't this just a counsel of despair. But of course, Jesus was a master counselor. And there's something in this context that helps us to understand what he is doing and why. Uh, so contextual reading is absolutely crucial. Uh, and it means particularly noticing uh, details that um, uh, inform um, the framework for what's being said. We, in this case, just heard that Jesus himself was troubled. The same verse this verb used in 14.1 uh, when he tells them not to be troubled. Um, so uh, he mentions the cynical reader of Luke uh, 4.23, physician, uh, heal yourself. Uh, but this paradoxical matter helps us to understand what's going on. Um, and in, in some ways we get to the very heart of the gospel. Um, Jesus is coming up to uh, his deepest trouble, betrayal, arrest, shame, crucifixion, abandonment. And he's bearing uh, the burden of our deepest troubles, our sin and the wage that it earns. And since he understands what uh, it's like to be troubled, he can sympathize with us. Um, because he was troubled, uh, our troubled hearts uh, can find peace. But in this case, he is uh, calling his disciples to understand why and how they need not be troubled. Um, there are reasons that trouble them, 
But there are greater reasons for overcoming that trouble. And that's the heart of the conversation, that he's going to address them, uh, particularly um, uh, Thomas and Philip in this um, section. So Jesus is counsel for the troubled heart. He's not talking about trivial matters, uh, but rather uh, deep turmoil. Um, He has been agitated in spirit, and now his uh, disciples are as well. Uh, Their world uh, seems to be coming apart. So how is it possible under those circumstances to have an untroubled heart? Dr. Ferguson is going to take this matter up uh, under five headings. Uh, Counsel for troubled hearts, having faith, knowing the way, answer for troubled disciples, and then a concluding word about some puzzling words at the end of this section. So, counsel for troubled hearts, that brings us to page 64 at the bottom and then over to 65. Um, and the he says, typically, the issue with the troubled heart is this, that the circumstances that we're facing seem uh, way beyond our capacity uh, to cope with them, uh, that our um, uh, experience and our skills are just not adequate to the um, circumstances, to the situation. Um, you think of uh, the disciples facing the storm at Galilee. Uh, Jesus, during the storm, which uh, seems to <laughs> threaten their very existence, uh, why are you afraid? And Dr. Ferguson acknowledges that fully, that they had every reason to be on the face of it. But Jesus' diagnostic question is quite probing. Have you still no faith? Found Mark 4.40. In other words, Jesus is trying to show them that they have resources that are far greater than the threat of the storm. Uh, and they failed to have grasped that at this point, and he wants to help them to grasp that. Um, he gives us a lovely illustration about the airplane, and it looks like it's something that's impossible to get off the ground, uh, but uh, there are, in fact, principles of aeronautics and so on that explain it. And uh, the um, uh, therefore, you can have confidence. In fact, I'd add to that illustration by saying this, that um, it's noteworthy that rationally you have a right to trust that the plane will fly even if you don't know the laws of aerodynamics. This is not blind faith. Rather, you believe it's going to fly because of your experience and the experience of many others And that's a proper ground, even if you don't know why it is that the plane can do what it does. In other words, it's important to understand that rationally, we can often know that something is the case without knowing how it's the case. And that's applicable to the circumstances of the disciples. They know that it's the case that Jesus uh, is the Lord of glory, His word calms the winds and the waves, and therefore there's no circumstance uh, that he can't deal with properly. Um, So when I find myself in some terrible circumstances, I don't know uh, how they've come about or even for what purpose, but I can know that I can trust Jesus to care for me, and that can trump even the most difficult uh, circumstances. That's the point that Paul makes in Romans 8.37. We are more than conquerors, but it's not of ourselves, but it's through him who loved us. And so uh, Jesus um, uh, rebuked to the disciples um, was uh, not that they shouldn't have trusted their experience, but rather they should have understood that the Son of God was on the boat. And that changed everything. Um, uh, They shouldn't have been filled uh, with fear, but rather filled with faith. 
That leads to the transition on page 66 of a discussion briefly of what it means to have faith. And here, Dr. Ferguson makes the crucial point that um, faith is not principally a passive thing, um, but rather there are active dimensions to it. Um, it faith, faith has an exercise, and in that exercise, it can actually become strengthened. Uh, when it's fail, when you fail to exercise it, it can become uh, less strong. Um, the um, and so um, Jesus gives imperatives for those who are troubled. He wants them to be active, believe, trust in God, trust in me. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Um, and the first point is faith needs to embrace the idea uh, that God is your security. Um, he gives us the wonderful illustration of Martin Luther and uh, his friend Philip Melanchthon and how they would read Psalm 46 in the midst of great difficulties and how that translated itself into the anthem of the Reformation, a mighty fortress is our God. Um, but the point is, there's a logic here at work. Um, Jesus is saying, trust in God, yes, but therefore also trust in me. These Israelites, of course, would have known very well Psalm 46 uh, from their youths. And they have been in Je- with Jesus for a number of years. And um, they would have every reason to find their security in him, the promised Messiah. Um, all the things that have taken place, uh, they've heard his unique teaching. They have seen the power that he had in ministry, and he had the promise. Um, they had the promise that he was going to prepare a place for them. So on page 73, we see a, a outline of this logic that the logic is what gives faith its strength as it grasps this logic. So Jesus says, um, here's what I'm going to do. I'm leaving. He gives them the explanation. I'm going to prepare a place for you in my father's house. And his conclusion is, therefore, I'm going to return to take you home. In other words, um, Dr. Dr. Ferguson argues that Christology is the foundation for soteriology. That is to say, the doctrine of who Jesus is and what he's able to do is the foundation for how his work savingly applies to our lives. The power of faith, he says, lies not in ourselves, uh, not even in the faith itself, but in the Christ and the logic of the gospel. And thus, even a weak faith has this strong Christ um, as its object. Um, so um, the, uh, there's much more we could say about this, and maybe at another time I would like to say a little more. But uh, that's his first point, to strengthen the disciples is to direct them to himself uh, and to his father, uh, that they can be both trusted without reservation. Now on page 68, uh, Dr. Ferguson acknowledged the reality that this can take time uh, to to, uh, take root in our hearts and minds. Um, But uh, confidence is available to us and um, that that ought to be part of the training of our own souls. Um, Jesus has gone, and he's preparing a place for us, and he's going to come back, uh, and he's waiting for that day, a beautiful way Dr. Ferguson puts it, that day when he'll bring us home to himself. The significance of that is powerful. He doesn't say, I'll bring you to my father's house. He doesn't say, I'll bring you to heaven. He says, I'll bring you to myself. That's the the beautiful 
uh, personal element here. And that leads us to the conclusion, this was, uh, I've never seen someone else say this, but uh, John Gerstner's wife, this was her saying, that uh, uh, the Christian is immortal in this world as long as the Lord has something for him to do. And uh, here's a version of that. We are immortal until our work for the Lord, Jesus, is done. That's a very powerful statement, but uh, uh, we need to let that sink in uh, and uh, have it become a part of our very sensibility in, in every circumstance in the world. Um, well, he goes on to quote this wonderful passage from Peter, and I hope you had a chance to meditate on it a little bit from 1 Peter 1, 3 to 7. Um, he, he speaks of... Uh, uh, that we, uh, the inheritance we have that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us, who by God's power are being kept through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. Two keepings. There's something kept for us, and we're being kept for what is kept for us, all by God's power. Uh, and that what's happening to us now, uh, we, uh, for a little while, will be grieved by various trials. But even that's doing a wonderful thing. It's uh, a refiner's fire, that the gold of our faith uh, would be uh, refined. Um, and all of this is to the praise and glory and honor of Jesus when he returns. Um and the uh, he then pauses for a minute and re- reflects briefly on what uh, the ex- disciples experience, but goes on then to verses 8 and 9. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That was a famous uh, favorite verse of Jonathan Edwards. And in fact, his great treatise on religious affections was grounded on that verse. That was the theme verse for the whole treatise, the study of um, uh, the true character of religious experience. And he was focusing uh, particularly on that phrase that we rejoice with the joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory. Um, In other words... And uh, this is a point that Ritterboss makes in his commentary on John. Christ's comfort for his disciples in his departure is that they will know spiritual fellowship with their heavenly Lord, even though he's gone. He's going to be with them throughout the period. And this is the thing that's crucial, not apostolic ministry, Uh, not the church and its mission, not even the consummation of the kingdom, but Christ's fellowship with his people in their calling in this age. Uh, Here's the point that Ritterboss makes. And all the ethical admonition, comfort, and power that radiate from this farewell have no other purpose than that the church on earth should understand itself belonging to him in heaven, and that, it, and that it should abide in him as he abides in uh, his members. Well, so, the, the, the first comfort is that uh, they are to recognize the reality of uh, the God they serve and his care for them. Um, then, at the... Uh, about the middle of page 69, he moves on to a second reason why their hearts don't need to be troubled. And that is uh, that they know where he's going. I thought this was a fascinating part of the chapter. And I I hope you grasp something of the significance of it. Um, And I'm going to have us jump ahead to page 70 uh, to the answer of the troubled to the troubled disciples, and particularly uh, Thomas here, we begin with, to get at uh, what I'm saying. Um, So Thomas was perplexed. Uh, What did Jesus mean by saying, uh, 
uh, that uh, they know where he's going. Um, and uh, the reaction that Thomas is, is quite blunt. We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? <laughs> Dr. Ferguson's having a, a little fun with this. He says, we know this fellow is doubting Thomas, but uh, uh, maybe that's too hard, but uh, he's certainly pessimistic, Thomas. <laughs> that uh, uh, he uh, uh, hopes for the best, but expects the worst. Um, the, uh, as the rough Russian proverb was. Um, um, the, you, you remember when Lazarus had died, when Jesus left and went up to Bethany, um, this was the place where Jesus was surely going to face great hostility. And uh, at the bottom of page 70, assuming the worst, Thomas responds, well, let's go up that we may die with him. <laughs> uh, sure, great idea, Thomas. Um, but in any case, um, at, at least Tom, Thomas is honest, and the, this gives the occasion uh, for Jesus to say to him, um, look, you need to look to me. Um, you're looking, but you're not seeing. And that's when that extraordinary verse, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, no one comes to the Father except through me. Um, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. Um, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. So what's Jesus getting at? And uh, we start with the way. These are young Jewish disciples. What would it mean for Jesus to say, I am the way? And of course, the background is uh, in this idea of halakha. Um, the law of Moses is very often translated this word, uh, the law or the law of Moses. Um, it literally means a path on which one walks. And the idea of the law or the way, calling it the way, is that um, the, uh, the law wasn't a matter of rules but it was a whole pathway of life which one followed. Um, you can see this in the words used in Deuteronomy 5:33. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may go well with you. Dr. Ferguson acknowledges that um, they, uh, it would be possible to lapse into formalism and legalism, which Israel did with uh, um, some frequently. But the point is that at, at the heart of it was that this was a blessed way of living. And um, that way was set forth in Israel in the written words of the Torah. But remember, John in his gospel had said, the word has been made flesh. Now, Jesus is telling Thomas, I am the halakha. I am this way of life that leads to flourishing and blessedness. He is uh, Dr. Ferguson puts it, the true Torah, the true word, the true way. Um, and uh, the Mosaic law, the Mosaic way, as it were, was preliminary and temporary. It was given to God's people until the promised Messiah came. But as Moses himself had noticed, God would, at the time of the Messiah, raise up a new prophet, greater than Moses, and he urged the people would listen to him. He would be the truth. Thomas didn't get this, but John has been telling us as we've read his gospel from the very first page, the law was given uh, through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Um, John has been teaching us that Jesus is the reality to which the Torah 
the way of the Old Covenant pointed forward. Now, there's a footnote um, on uh, uh, page 71. It's worth noticing briefly here. Um, The Ten Commandments, uh, God's principles of life, were written on the heart of Adam and Eve as created in the image of God. And this was not completely eliminated by the fall. There were still vestiges of that on their hearts. And that's true with respect to everybody. But at Mount Sinai, these principles were written on tablets of stone and given specific application to the children of Israel. As sinners, as delivered from Egypt, as the nation from whom the promised seed of the woman, the Messiah, would come. In the New Covenant, it is these original creation laws, rather than the temporal, civil, and ceremonial applications of them in the Mosaic Covenant, that are written on the heart of believers. That's the burden of Jeremiah 31:33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. This text is cited twice in the book of Hebrews as precisely uh, explaining what God was doing with his new covenant people in Hebrews chapter 8 and Hebrews chapter 10. Um, Well, let me pause there um, and uh, see if you have any questions, comments uh, on what we've said thus far. All right, seeing none, I'll then uh, press on. The, the, the point you, that, yeah. I, there's so many. Um, and uh, just in this last section, it uh, reminds me of Second Corinthians in chapter 10, where um, he's talking about taking every thought captive. And that when we begin in our Christian walk to get this, that um, as we're going through the day and we are through the maturity, maybe in this learning what it means to walk in Christ, it isn't so much that, you know, I'm a Christian, so, okay, on Sunday I'm going to go to church, and I'll, you know, I'll hear a good sermon. And then it's kind of a jolt when you get to Sunday because you've forgotten about Christ the rest of the week, kind of. Because you have to live your life. You've got a lot to do. Um, but what this seems to be talking about, and that verse in Second Corinthians, is that we're, we're learning through being in Christ as a child who can barely babble and understand things, that taking every thought captive becomes a moment-by-moment thing. Sure. You have an interaction with somebody where you have a thought and you, um, it's, it's because then, oh, I just, I remember that thing that I said and I'm embarrassed that I said it but you catch it right away, or even a thought that you thought, you know, just a thought, not a, even mm-hmm. words that you spoke, um, that it's, it, you're, it seems like we come to under, we come to have more of a sense that the Spirit is with us. Yeah, I, I, and this, that's, I think this is such a wonderful unfolding of the idea of that simple phrase that we've heard so many times, I am the way, yes. uh, drawing it back into the idea that what God wants is a way of life from his people. He gave uh, the written word to them to be a guide in their minority. But now, with the new covenant, that word is a living word. It's the last word. It's Jesus. And Jesus becomes 
our way of life. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of the Lord. Um, that's the beautiful point on page 73. Uh, uh, Dr. Ferguson mentions from Psalm 24 that challenging question, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? What's the way to get there? And Jesus gives uh, the answer that I am the true and life-giving halakha. It is through faith in me that you can come uh, to the Father. But that's a great point, Jen. Um, but it, it's in contrast to, I was just in New York on um, Friday last, and um, we happened to drive through the community in Brooklyn, I believe it is, where the um, Hasidic Jews live. And you could just see on the streets that that's a way of life. But that is not what Christ is talking about. That you all dress the same, you have all these rules you follow. Well, in fact, that that's the, the, the failure exactly. there is not that they're not thinking of the calling as a way of life. The failure is that they've made the ceremonies and externals to right. be the way of life, as opposed yeah. to putting on Christ uh, right. and being clothed exactly. in his righteousness as yes. the way of life. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so that's what, that's what I was trying to, yes. the I was trying to make. Yes. Is that we don't say, okay, this is the way Christians dress. This is the way, this, these are the jobs that Christians can have. You know, whatever you want to insert there. But anyway. Good point. Anyone else a thought? All right. Well, let's uh, press on. Um, it's page 73. The law always pointed to God's grace. Uh, you remember... Um, the, God didn't give the law to Israel while they were slaves in Egypt and say, look, you do a good job keeping this law and I'll bring you up out of slavery and bring you to redemption. No, he freed them first, purely graciously. He brings them out into the wilderness and gives them the law as he's bringing them to the land of promise, and the law is not a way of earning their salvation, but a way of learning to live in the land of promise, to uh, to to be with God in His holy hill and and whatnot. But uh, nice way of phrasing it, Doctor Ferguson has at the top of seventy three, the law pointed to God's grace, but it was never intended to be identified with the grace to which it pointed. That only came in Jesus Christ. Kate, did I see your hand? or? Yes. Yeah. This puzzles me a little bit because we know that Jews were saved, some of them. So, um, like Moses and... Why does that? I don't understand your puzzlement on that. Well, you're saying the law. He's saying the law pointed to God's grace, but it was never identified with the grace. That it puzzles me a little bit. I mean, it seems like it was identified with the law for a long time. No, not at all. Remember, the, the living by the law was itself a. a, a expression of the reality of God's grace in Israel. They weren't living by the law in order to earn or gain that grace. They had been graciously acted upon by God, by the power of the Spirit, in order to make them love the law and count it as uh, more precious than gold and so on. So grace exists then too. Oh, absolutely exists, but it's not understood in the same way that we have when Christ is on the scene. And we learn that, in fact, there's a living way of life who has come to be the sacrifice for our sins, and his life 
being poured into us and his um, uh, faithfulness being credited to our account. Now, the whole, the whole system is grace from start to finish. It's gracious that uh, Adam and Eve aren't destroyed uh, in the day that they eat of the tree. And that grace carries on um, in every age of redemptive history. It's all of grace. There's one covenant of grace that has different administrations at different places in redemptive history. And the administration of the Mosaic Covenant had a purpose for its time and place, but what Ferguson, I think, has very potently argued here is that it was a passing thing, as wonderful as it was. And what we're seeing when Jesus says, I am the way, now we no longer have a written Torah that describes the way of life for God's grace-moved people. But now we have a living word who is the way of life for God's grace-moved people. Does does that help at all? Yes, it does. Thank you. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, I'd better try it move on a little bit. Um, the, um, so, uh, bottom of page 73, we get to the saying that is, of course, one of the great offenses uh, uh, of Christianity. The, the funny thing is, as Dr. Ferguson is going to point out, this saying, no one comes to the Father through me, it's almost never attributed to Jesus. <laughs> In contemporary uh, uh, assaults on Christianity, it's always attributed to Christians. That it's Christians who are saying no one can come to God except through Jesus. And for somehow, Jesus gets a pass on this point, <laughs> which is just remarkable. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's because Jesus is such a remarkable figure that he, here's the point. If he said, no one comes to the Father except through me. And it's not true. He is the most offensive egomaniac that's ever lived in the history of the world. And I think the testimony of his life in the Gospels is so powerful that that's an impossible conclusion. That people want to forget that it's Jesus who said it and attribute it to these ignorant, narrow-minded followers of his. Um, the, um, so, uh, the, uh, uh, on page 74, Dr. Ferguson imagines the sneer of TV interviewers. Are you really so arrogant that you believe that anyone who disagrees with you cannot go to heaven? Shame on you, you narrow-minded bigot. Well, and Dr. Ferguson is going to show on page 74 there are a number of ways to respond to it. Um, uh, the first is the obvious one. Uh, we're not the ones making the claim. That's what I've just been getting at. These are Jesus' words. Uh, that, that's what I used to say to people regularly who'd come to church and they were a little shocked to see such a narrow-minded person pro- proclaiming this truth. And I said, look, I just work here. If you have a problem with this, talk to the boss. Um, uh, the second uh, he brings up is that um, if this is the Son of God, can anyone really say he doesn't have a right to say that he alone can bring us to the Father? And then that brings to the third that surely if God decides the only way that sinners can be saved is by sending his son to die for their sins. How on earth could someone say uh, that um, uh, there needs to be more ways? None of us deserve any way. Uh, But in a nice terse line at the end of 74, uh, Dr. Ferguson concludes... Uh, the arrogance lies elsewhere. And then he goes on on page 75 
to that remarkable dialogue back and forth, uh, having God uh, uh, question the one who is uh, objecting to there being uh, only one way. And uh, it is quite powerful reinforcing this point. Um, But um, on page 76, he urges us that we should take with all seriousness Jesus's answer uh, to Thomas's question. And I I thought it'd be worth just a, a minute to reflect on this, that the idea that Jesus is the way and the which we are explaining it tonight, this really ought to be our self-consciousness. And, and I think it's remarkable. I mean, we ought to think of ourselves as the people of the way. It's interesting to note that the Greek term used in this passage is the Greek term used in Deuteronomy 5.33, which translates uh, the halakha. Um, that's a very powerful point. And it's, remember, that in Acts, the way is the name used for Christians and the Christian faith. In Acts 9.1, we have Paul breathing out threats and murder against the disciples. And in verse 2, it says that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Uh, Paul speaks of Christianity as uh, the way when he uh, is cross-examined by Felix in 24, Acts 24, 22. Uh, and it is a way opposed by some of the Jews in Acts 19. Uh, and um, in Acts 24, uh, the, uh, Paul speaks of it as the way. Um, I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything down, set down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God. Um, and here that nicely ties the idea of the way from the Old Testament um, to the way which is Christ uh, under the new covenant. Well, on to Philip. Um, Philip is uh, of a different sort of person. Um, the, uh, he requests of Christ, uh, show us the Father. And again, Jesus uh, disappointed, don't you know me, Philip? Um, Philip, Dr. Ferguson thinks, is the sort of fellow that just needs to try and think things out on his own. He mentions the business of the feeding of the 5,000 and uh, Philip coming up with a calculation of how much it would cost to feed that many people. He's trying to figure stuff out, but he doesn't have quite the proper categories. Good old Andrew, who uh, was such an enthusiastic disciple, uh, thought at least, well, I'll I'll find some bread and fish. Who knows what Jesus can do with a boy who's willing to share his lunch. Um, Philip had witnessed this, but it didn't uh, change uh, his orientation much, uh, even though, as Dr. Ferguson puts it on 77, uh, he had seen the Father providing manna in the desert uh, through uh, his revelation of himself and Jesus and the feeding of the 5,000. Very thoughtful point. Um, so um, the, the uh, power of what Jesus' encounter with Philip is this that, um, look, the whole time you've been with me, and this is in uh, Dr. Ferguson's kind of uh, imagination of how Jesus would have encountered Philip. Uh, Have you not heard my father's voice in what I have said and recognized my father's presence and power in the works that I have done? Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the father. And of course, this too ties back into the prologue of John's gospel, uh, that uh, Jesus, who is at the Father's side, is the only one who can make him known. Um, the uh, Dr. Ferguson nicely uh, 
warns us on page 78 not to be misled in this language. There's no confusion here between the two divine persons. Um, uh, But the fact is, on a personal level, they imply that nothing in the Father's character or in his attitude toward us is different from that which we find in Jesus. And furthermore, uh, Jesus goes on with Philip, that if you haven't heard the Father's words and uh, in my teaching, well, believe because of the works themselves that you've seen. You've seen things that no one but the Father could do. So you must know that the Father and I and, uh, are in, in a step here. And do you remember, that's the point Nicodemus made when he came. We know you're a teacher sent from God, for no one could do the things you do lest God were with him. Well, we come to uh, the home stretch, the conclusion, these puzzling words and words uh, as much as any have led to a a great bit of confusion with inattentive readers. Um, Jesus closes the section with, truly, truly, I say unto you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Many, many readers take this as a general statement to about and address to all Christians in every age. Dr. Ferguson wants to argue and tries to give uh, good reasons that I think are cogent, that in fact, the I say unto you is... Uh, the um, disciples Um, and who believes in me that is you who are disciples uh, you will also do these works and greater works because I am going to the father that's a crucial phrase in understanding that Um, and whatever you ask in my name I will do that the father may be glorified in the son is this a blanket promise well Uh, There are all kinds of indications, one very powerful one cited, uh, 1 Corinthians 12. Paul says, do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? And the the whole sense of the text is the answer is no, they don't. There are different gifts uh, distributed according to the will of God. And thus, you you can't take this as a simple blanket um, promise. He turns to, of course, the television preachers who uh, generally think that uh, this was addressed to them. And uh, generally their theology is utterly corrupt, ignoring 2,000 years of church history. Um, And uh, there's a sober warning for them. Uh, Dr. Ferguson brings up from uh, Matthew 7 that not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. There'll even be people who claim didn't we prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Um, but the point is, what does what does the text mean? And as I said, Dr. Ferguson is going to argue that Jesus is not addressing us. We weren't there. We can't assume that everything our Lord said applies to us in the same way that it applies to to the disciples. And uh, Dr. Ferguson uh, insists that this is uh, things that are said and promises to made to those who are there in the room, that is the apostles. Um, And he was saying specifically to them, let me introduce, emphasize to you, uh, my dear troubled friends, that if you trust in me the way as I have been urging you, greater works will you do uh, than you have seen me do. And if you ask me anything in relationship to this task, I will do it. Um, the um, uh, Again, the anything there, uh, the footnote's important. Um, uh, to ask anything in Christ's name implies that the anything conforms to the word and promise of God. It's not Christ's name as a talisman, 
but Christ's name is the context in which any requests could be made. That is his will and purpose. Um, and he also has a nice point about the un, un, unrepeatability of the apostolic office, but we can't take that up this evening. Um, but the the point is that um, here um, that the apostles fulfill what Ferguson calls Jesus' promise prophecy. You're going to do greater things. And that promise is fulfilled in the apostolic ministry. Um, you're going to pray to me and ask, and I'm going to deliver. Uh, it's clear from the book of Acts that the extraordinary work the apostles did over and over again was in answer to prayer. They prayed in Christ's name according to his will, and it was done for them. How are these greater works will look? Now the Son is no longer limited by the pre-death condition that characterized his ministry. He could only preach to a few people, even at the largest, and never had the kind of response that came after his resurrection and his ascension glory. He poured out his spirit upon the church and suddenly works that were beyond imagination. Redemption is one. The risen Christ is reigning from heaven over all things. Through his apostles, the kingdom of God is triumphant, invading nations with saving and transforming power. The covenant community stretches outward from its Jewish center to embrace the worlds, the world. The disciples begin a ministry through the power of the Holy Spirit that will not be overcome. It's no surprise that in the Acts of the Apostles, the apostles are identified as the men who have turned the world upside down. That's what Jesus was talking about. Um, that uh, his promised prophecy fits the whole context of this section of his teaching. He addressed his troubled disciples, and now they've been given specific promises to encourage them that will get them through the crisis that they're facing because suddenly they think that all of their hopes are dashed because Jesus is leaving. Jesus' is, uh, answer is that they must resist being overwhelmed by the circumstances of this night and in the days ahead and trust in his promise that they will see the great works of God in the future, and that in the meantime, his presence is going to continue with them. Having loved his own, who were in the world, Jesus loved them to the end. Well, uh, this is a remarkable uh, chapter, um, and yet Jesus' deep concern is not bearing all of the trouble that he's about to face beyond anything they can imagine. But under that crushing burden that he's facing, Dr. Ferguson said he speaks those words of comfort and encouragement to his disciples. Philip Doddridge put it this way, reflecting on it. Here in these words, we see the most affectionate discoveries of the very heart of our blessed Redeemer, overflowing in every sentence with the kindest concern, not only for the safety, but for the comfort of his people. And Dr. Ferguson finishes, uh, and it's amazing for us to know that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is the same uh, Savior and Lord that we serve. Well, thoughts, um, questions, comments, reflections on any of this? It was a, a kind of uh, freight train to roll past us here this evening with so much before us. Um, I hope the summary is at least helpful to get crystallized some of the parts of the chapter that are particularly of importance for us. Questions? Comments? Um, Dave, back on um, somewhere around page 67 and 68, um, 
heavy base, that, that section. Um, and Ferguson was talking about the various ways in the New Testament we see faith. But it helps so much also to read the Old Testament um, because we see there how um, so, so many examples of the faith of those that uh, are given voice in, in the Old Testament. And it is a help because, um, and then I don't say all this stuff well, but Christ says they should have understood because all the prophets um, were speaking of him yes. and they should have known that. Right. And, and many, many embraced that. I mean, yes. that's your point, that the Psalms right. are full of uh, faith being expressed in the promises and power of God. And even with Abraham, I think Kate brought that up um, it wasn't keeping the law that he was he was commended for. It was for his faith. Right. He believed God, and it was credited unto him as yeah, righteousness. Yeah, it was his faith. And the faith then was the same as the faith now. It's believing in things that are not seen. And Christ saying, I'm going to go away, and you're not going to see me. We have to have faith in him. What do you think I'm saying? I'm going to have a place for you Some. Yes. Right. We have to have faith in that. That isn't something that he gives, you know, draws a picture on a parchment and says, "This is what it's going to look like." Right. Kind of thing. Right. Um, but the, reading the Old Testament is, is such an encouragement when we see that. Yes. Um, and didn't and Christ came and that was great. But the crux of that, I mean, he he entered, he, he introduced his presence, introduced the change, and he was kind of face-to-face with that old, uh, the wrong view, those Pharisees and Sadducees who thought, well, we're keeping the law, and we're going to tell you what the law is. But on the other hand, he came to uh, wonderful people like Simeon and Anna and others who were all waiting for the consolation of Israel. Mary, her extraordinary faith. Mary, Mary surely is one of the greatest examples of what uh, Dr. Ferguson was talking about tonight. She could have felt completely undone by her circumstances. Right. Uh, but she said, I'm the handmaiden of the Lord. Um, right. And Paul the Apostle, I mean, he had to be conked on the head. <laughs> <laughs> right. You're not right. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. Did Bonnie, did I see you wanted to get... Um, I was just confused, and I don't know that I can um, ask the question succinctly, so maybe I'll think about it for next week. All right, great. Be sure and write it down, though. Don't don't let it get away. Who else? did I, I saw another hand somewhere, but I can't remember who it was. Anybody else wanting to get a word in? All right, well, thank you all for being here tonight, and um, I uh, hope you've got plenty to think about from this chapter. It might be worth going back to and reflecting on further. Um, There was really so much. Um, If you're interested in a more detailed treatment of the text, I preached on the Gospel of John some years ago. And for John 14 in this passage, I actually preached three separate sermons on um, the, the uh, I go to prepare a place for you is the one focus. The second was I am uh, the way, the truth, and the life. And the last was with, with respect to uh, the thing we've just been talking about with the promise to the apostles. And uh, they're available on the church website if it would be of any interest to you. Um, well... Let me pray for us. Our Father, um, what a grand thing to contemplate that Christ didn't abandon the apostles and through uh, his presence with them, uh, his power at work, 
they turned the world upside down and we are part of the fruit of that great ministry and we are grateful that at least in this we are uh, similarly situated with the apostles that Christ has gone to prepare a place for us as well uh, and that his desire is that we be with him and we pray that we could ever have uh, a deep desire to be with him and that we could have the sensibility of the Apostle Paul, I don't know which is better, uh, to continue, uh, means fruitful service, uh, but be to be with the Lord is far better. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.